Thanks for coming. Well, uh, I happened to uh, hear a good podcast yesterday. Uh, the Ezra Klein Show. Maybe you listen to that sometimes. The title of the show was, What Have We Learned from a Summer of Climate Reckoning? And actually, uh, the host of the show is not Ezra Klein. He's, he's busy. So he had a guest host, David Wallace-Wells. Uh, you might know that name. In, in, in 2019, uh, Wallace-Wells published a very, very scary book, a best-selling book uh, called The Uninhabitable Planet that was much discussed in that year. It was a sketch of some pretty horrific scenarios that might happen if we were not able to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which at the time it appeared unlikely that we would be able to do. Since then, just a few years really, according to Wallace Wells and many other people, things have improved considerably. We are converting to green energy worldwide at a much faster rate than seemed even possible five years ago. We're doing so well that we may even be able to avoid the truly awful outcomes that Wallace Wells wrote, wrote about. It even seems conceivable that if we collectively were to do better than we're on pace to do right now, we might actually be able to get to zero emissions by 2050, which is not long from now, and that's the current goal. And even if we didn't do better and we just continued more or less at the present rate, we would be at zero emissions by 2070. And this is what Wallace Wells was saying in the podcast uh, with his co-host, who is a, a climate physicist named Kate Marvell, who's very, very smart and articulate. I'm sure you know about her. And the link to that podcast is easy to find on the New York Times website. I think we also put a link to it on Everyday Zen website. Of course, uh, there's always good news and bad news, always. The bad news uh, is that the negative effects of global climate change are more various, deeper, more rapid, and worse than expected, and very, very hard to predict. I think we all know that the last couple of years have been the hottest years ever. And we heard last summer that every day for months or almost a month or some long period of time anyway, the temperatures in Phoenix were 110 degrees every day and people were passing out from the heat and falling on the sidewalk and their bare skin against the 180 degree heat of the pavement sent them to the burn units in Phoenix hospitals. But part of the reason for that really awful heat is the normal cyclical El Nino effect, 
which means that in a few years without El Nino, it might not be quite as hot. El Nino is a somewhat a predictable known phenomenon, but there are lots of unpredictable things that might happen to make things better or worse than expected. And all the models, though as accurate as the data will allow, are only models. They're always going to be wrong, one way or the other. And this reminds me of an experience I had uh, years ago. First time I got a car with a computer in it that would tell me how many miles I could expect to drive on the amount of gas I had left on the tank, in the tank. It would say, you know, so many miles you can drive. One time <clears throat> I was driving uh, to Tassajara very confidently, uh, starting down the 14-mile very steep Tassajara Road with no worries in the world because the computer of my car said that I had something like a hundred miles range. But after driving up the road for about four or five miles, all of a sudden the computer changed its mind and told me that I now had a range of 25 miles. <laughs> what? but I only drove four miles. What do you mean? What's wrong with this computer? Well, <laughs> you'd think I would have understood this, but uh, no, the computer can only predict the future based on the past. And my car's computer accurately projected a future that would occur if the pattern of the past remained the same but then, of course, it changed. The pattern of the past never remains the same in the present and into the future, because time is alive, and unexpected things always happen to make things better or worse. As we found out during COVID, I mean, we should have known this, but during COVID, it became so apparent that science is very, very confusing. It gives you a snapshot of a probable moment, a probable future, based on all the available data. But the snapshot only lasts for a split second because there's more data and a second later. And then there's another snapshot when the more data is amassed and all the snapshots are essentially imaginary and momentary. And the more snapshots you take, the more you know. And the more you know, the clearer it becomes that really you don't know. And you will never know because nothing ever stays the same. And because nothing ever stays the same, nothing is predictable. Which is all to say, that really and truly, the truest and maybe the most difficult thing about global climate change, and one of the reasons why it's taken so long to get a hold of it, is that it is of its nature uncertain. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. 
knowing how to live with some happiness and balance so as to have the ability to act effectively without freaking out is always a really important life skill. But when it comes to climate change, it may be the most important thing. Because among the many unpredictable things about climate change, and Kate Marvell speaks about this brilliantly in the podcast, the most unpredictable thing about climate change, and maybe the most unsettling thing, is how human beings and human societies will react. So the ability to live happily and confidently with uncertainty is really, really important. And this is where our practice really helps us. And it's why just simply to practice, to do Zazen, is a part of what we need to do to contribute to the world of the future. So I learned a lot of new things from this podcast. For instance, I didn't know till Kate Marvell mentioned this, that the aerosols in the air, which are dangerous pollutants, actually forestall heating of the earth. And that's why she said the actual effects of climate change were masked from our view from about 1940 till about 1980, when Europe and North America successfully all but eliminated aerosols from the atmosphere. And when they did this, the heating that had been there in potential as carbon was increasing in the atmosphere suddenly bumped up and became much more alarming all of a sudden. The rest of the world has not yet eliminated aerosols, so there still are aerosols in the atmosphere. And the rest of the world will eliminate aerosols, which they should do because aerosols are really bad. They kill people. They're terrible pollutants. But when that happens, the measurable effects of climate change are suddenly going to spike again. And of course, the human lifespan is really short. And the Earth's lifespan is really long. And the damage done by climate change will take centuries, maybe millennia, to work itself through the healing processes of the planet. And what that's going to look like in any particular lifespan of this or that human generation, nobody really knows. And it will almost certainly come as a surprise. I think that with justice, we could blame some people for all this. For instance, uh, oil company executives and their allies who knew the science, but willfully obscured it and are still for the good of their businesses dragging their feet. On the other hand, all of us have encouraged and benefited by technological growth and development 
based on burning fossil fuels. Literally, we would not, many of us would not be here, you know, we would not have been born, you know, if we didn't have prosperity and modernity. With hindsight, it's easy to imagine how we could have done it a lot better. But we were always going to burn up lots of those buried dinosaur carcasses and the carcasses of the other 90% or so of species that disappeared all of a sudden many millions of years ago when a giant meteor struck the earth and totally altered the climate. That catastrophic event created a giant pool of fossils. And we were never not going to burn them up to create the modern world. However, amid, amidst all the uncertainty and all the fatalism of all this, there is one simple thing that is absolutely clear. It's not a good idea to burn fossil fuels. Burning fossil fuels warms the planet and warming the planet is bad for living things. So it, we really, really do have to get to zero emissions as quickly as possible. And although, although now no one can deny this anywhere, there are still plenty of people who don't quite believe it, mutter about it, or prefer not to think about it or worry about it, and would, if we let them alone, definitely ignore it. As a matter of fact, I also would like to ignore it because it's not a great thing to think about. Maybe you also would be happy to ignore it if you could, but we can't do that. We can't let that happen. We have a moral obligation to keep the pressure up on ourselves and on our friends and through us and them on large companies and governments who can do the most to cause emissions reduction. And even though going to zero emissions won't necessarily, won't necessarily, won't necessarily noticeably in a short human lifespan change that much in terms of climate, don't forget, it will immediately change things for the better. Because green fuel is clean fuel and fossil fuel is dirty fuel. It ruins the air and the water and it kills people and plants and animals. Pollution, you know, which is really deadly, all apart from climate change. So a green world is going to be a better world. It's going to feel better and be better, even if the summers are still hot and the wildfires still burn. And we human beings are going to feel better. And we're actually going to be better for having done the right thing. So it's really important to keep on thinking about the earth, appreciating the earth as a crucial part of our spiritual practice, not just a political issue 
we should do something about, but an integral part of our practice. To practice never taking the earth for granted. To realize that there is no earth out there that is not in here, and there never was. That we literally are the earth, and the earth is us. We are one being. So we have to think about climate change. We have to never forget about it. We have to never accept it as something normal and unpreventable. Climate change is a great challenge to our human intelligence and to our capacity for compassion and unselfishness. I actually think that we were created, the earth created us in order to confront this challenge and to be perfected by it. And it always makes me think of the, of the moment when the Buddha was on his enlightenment seat and was in the middle of his dark, dark night confronted by Mara, the evil one, who attacked him with his minions of guilt, sensuality, attachment, clinging, fear, and so on, and shouted at Buddha, here are my forces, where are yours? The Buddha responded wordlessly by touching the earth. And with that famous earth-touching gesture, the Buddha was saying, the earth is my champion, the earth is my protector. I am the earth and the earth is me. And the earth made me to express awakening, compassion and wisdom. This is why I am here on this seat. And this is why nothing can ever defeat me. So we're reading uh, Dogen's essay, Valley Sounds, Mountain Colors, Kaisei Sanshoku. There are lots of different translations you can easily find online. This is the one in, Moon, in uh, Kaz, Kaz's Shobogenzo. This is a beginning, uh, so this is a passage toward the beginning. Slipping out of your old skin, not constrained by past views, you manifest immediately what has been dormant for boundless eons. As this very moment manifests, I don't know who doesn't know, you have no expectations, and the Buddha eye sees beyond seeing. This experience is beyond the realm of human thinking. And here's another translation by uh, Professor Francis Dojin Cook, which is simpler and clearer, I think. When you finally achieve the various liberations from doing zazen, everything that was withheld from you in the past because of your discriminating mind will be revealed to you at once. This instant of revealed reality, I do not understand, nor do you 
nor does anyone. Not even the Buddha vision sees it. So how can it be fathomed by human calculation? And Dogen then follows that couple of sentences with Sudungwa's famous poem, which is gives the title and the theme of the essay. It's a short poem. The sounds of the valley stream are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountain are his pure body. All night long I hear murmuring of myriad sutras. How explain this to anyone in the morning? And this uh, was a poem that uh, Sudangwa wrote after a night in the Monastery of Awakening. And Dogen means to add this verse to what he has said in the previous passage. What he's trying to say is that the natural world, but I think he means not only the natural world, the whole of the world, every piece of it that's untouched by human hands, by clinging and grasping, the whole of the world, especially the natural world, because it's most untouched, expresses the boundless and ineffable Buddha beyond Buddha. The sound of the stream is, when you really hear it, Buddha's broad tongue speaking. The form and color of the mountain, when you really see it, is Buddha's noble, enduring body. And the whole world actually is a sutra, teaching you all the time, verse after verse after verse. It is perfectly clear when you know it and impossible to explain. So what Dogen is saying here, and what he says throughout this essay, is that the world, most eloquently and most especially the natural world, is not just stuff waiting there, inanimate, to be exploited, a kind of a backdrop for the human spectacle. That's why I hate the idea of the environment. The environment, it's not the environment as if it were like a scenery, you know, for the play, and we're in, on stage, and the, and the world is scenery for the play. It's not that. It's an expression of the deepest and inmost truth. It is sacred and profound, and it is no different, non-different from us. And I think that the reason we in the Western world have been able to be so reckless with the bounty of the earth is that we have not respected the earth. We have never seen it for what it really is. We've taken it as, as an object, as mere material stuff. And in the process, and here's where it's a little um, counterintuitive. In the process of doing that, we've done the same thing to ourselves and to one another. We've made ourselves and one another also into objects for use. 
And that's why our own individual brokenness, injustice among and between human beings, and climate insanity are all really the same thing. They are the result of taking what is sacred and whole and insisting on seeing it as partial and profane. And this is the whole point of our practice, to heal this terrible wound, to correct this grave mistake. And that's why, although Dogen seems not to use the word Zazen in that passage I quoted in the beginning, uh, Francis Cook adds it because it's true that for Dogen, Zazen is the great healing. When we sit in Zazen, as Dogen understands Zazen, with faith and commitment, even if our Zazen is disturbed or messy, we enter into this great healing. In the moment of sitting, we are not objectifying ourselves or others or the world, but rather we are becoming Buddha mind, the mind of wholeness, unity, and sacredness. And when to practice Zazen becomes central to our way of living, we are automatically training ourselves every single day, day in and day out, in this profound view and experience. In uh, his essay on Dogen and the environment, that's also uh, referenced on the page, on the, on the uh, website, Taigen Layton, who I saw in Chicago uh, recently, he's doing well. He notes uh, that in uh, Kaisei Sanshoku, Dogen begins by identifying Buddha Dharma with the natural world. It's a very inspiring part at the beginning. But then somehow he seems to change tone and speak about the need to practice without any thought of improvement or gain and to repent again and again for failing to do that and to vow to go on with determination and purity. In a way, it's a little bit like mixing apples and oranges, going from the sublime to the scold, you know, in the middle, in the middle of the essay. And it reminds me a little bit of, of the words of Thich Nhat Hanh that we were reciting last week at seminar in our climate repentance ceremony. In a way, in that what we read last week does the same thing. First, Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about our identity with the earth and how we must fall in love with the earth. And then he says we have to repent. We have to humbly accept responsibility for not having done better so that we can do better. So, in a minute, I'm going to open up the floor to climate odes, earth odes, or any other things that anybody might want to present. But a few, just a few things that I want to be sure to say 
because last week I forgot. I want to be sure to say them. First of all, I meant to tell you last week about this great thing, this great program that Chris is doing with Mark and Lee Lesser and other people, and Zen Center is co-sponsoring, I think. They are doing uh, retreats for firefighters from all around the country who are the ones who deal with these truly alarming forest fires, wildfires that we can now expect every year in North America. We changed our practice schedule because two years in a row when we were having session, it was almost canceled because there was smoke and fire in the area. So they're doing retreats to help out these firefighters to take care of them. And, and in fact, this is going to be a major activity everywhere now is doing whatever, all kinds of things that can be done to take care of first responders. All the many people who now and in the future are going to be the people directly dealing with the bad effects of climate change and taking care of those people is a crucial matter. And these retreats really, really help them and they love them. So I wanted you to know that uh, Chris is doing this. And of course, these programs require funding. So uh, there's a, again on the web page, there's information about this and Zen Center has information about it. So if you can make contributions, please do. And also, I always forget to say this too, and this is important. Everyday Zen also needs your ongoing support. We're doing okay, but not if you don't contribute. So please do continue to make contributions. We try to make things as simple as they can possibly be so as to not spend a lot of money. Um, but it does cost some money to keep doing what we're doing. So I thank all of you in advance for your offerings to both these programs. Also, I wanted to, I, I mentioned this in the morning sit that I went down to Mountain View to Conondo on Monday for the stepping down ceremony of my old dear friend Cato Les Kay, who retired as abbot there after serving the temple like a rock, you know, for 50 years, 50 years. And Les and his community have asked me to help out during this time when there will be no abbot. So I, as well as Kathy and John, are doing what we can to visit and participate with people down there. And I, and I bring it up because uh, in the ceremony, Les made a wonderful Dharma statement, and I want to share that with you because it was a beautiful expression of 50 years of practice, and also it's completely relevant to everything that I've been saying tonight. Here's what he said. It's short. 50 years ago, I entered the world of the Zendo. Immediately, I felt at home. I found what I was seeking without knowing I was seeking. It was what Suzuki Roshi meant by our inmost desire, finding the fundamental quality of being alive inherent in everyone. I discovered that the world of the Zendo was not a separate world. It was not a spiritual world different from an everyday world. There was no way to describe or explain the feeling. It was beyond the intellect, 
The world of the Zendo is the natural world. It is freedom from fear. It is joy for this life. The world of the Zendo has windows without shades. It removes all obstacles to seeing what is real. The world of the Zendo lets in the light. It is the real world, the world of sanity. Our practice erases the imagined separation between the world of the Zendo and the everyday world. It is the authentic life. It is Suzuki Roshi's way. I had the good fortune and the opportunity to know Suzuki Roshi for two brief years. He showed me the meaning of the Bodhisattva way. He was a spiritual visionary for the modern world. It has been an honor and a privilege to have had a relationship, to have had a leadership role at Kanando. It has been 50 years exploring how to bring Zen practice into the light. Thank you for the opportunity. I made mistakes during my exploration. Please excuse my mistakes. Do not let them get in the way of your effort. Continue to raise the shades. Make the world of the Zendo available so that everyone has the opportunity to discover the light of the real world. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, and he, less is not 100% in good health, so it took him some effort to appear at the ceremony and do all the bowing and chanting and deliver that statement in a very, very moving way. Wonderful person. So now I finally, finally end with a little uh, prayer. This is a prayer uh, from one of the great spiritual geniuses of all time, Rebbe Nachman of Vraslav, who lived at the end of the 18th, early 19th century. And uh, he was actually from the Ukraine. The Ukraine had one of the great spiritual traditions in the whole world. Between Jewry and Christianity there, it was very powerful. Still is, I guess. So this is Rabbi Nachman's prayer. Grant me the ability to be alone. May it be my custom to go outdoors every day among the trees and grass, among all growing things, and there may I be alone and enter into prayer to talk with the one to whom I belong. May I express there everything in my heart, and may all the foliage of the field, all grasses, trees, and plants, awake at my coming to send the powers of their life into the words of my prayer, so that my prayer and speech are made whole through the life and spirit of all growing things, which are made as one by their transcendent source. May I then pour out the words of my heart, before your presence like water, O God, and lift up my hands to you in worship on my behalf and that of my children. And that actually is a description of the practice that Rebbe Nachman actually did do every day, and his disciples did. 
and we do in our Jewish meditation retreats. This is a fan, we call it. It's called the uh, Rebbe Nachman called it hit but hit practice. And we would do this. We would go out by ourselves, uh, and you have to talk out loud. You speak out loud to God. You just start talking, and the, the, and the way it works is you don't you don't censor yourself, and you don't plan anything you're going to say. You just keep talking. You never stop until until you're done. So we would do this walking out in nature. Sometimes we, when we couldn't get into nature, we would do it on the streets of San Francisco, which now you can do because they all think you're talking on a cell phone. And we would talk out loud to God and, and just say everything that was in our heart. It's a beautiful practice, but especially if you can do it in nature. So I recommend it. You might try it sometime. So I'm done, except to tell you, that I won't be here next week. Jean will lead seminar next week. If I don't tell you now, I'll forget later. Jean will lead seminar next week because I will be having a little operation uh, for my, uh, some of you will recall my uh, famous at the time problems uh, with urination. I won't go into the details, but a couple of years ago, I had a lot of trouble so I'm having an operation, and this is a simple procedure, completely common among men my age. It is not a big deal. However, it does require general anesthesia. And uh, so in the very, very, very unlikely event that the anesthesiologist, uh, you know, was drunk last night and messes up somehow, and I will never see you again. I say goodbye and uh, seriously, you know, goodbye and thank you all for your practice and for all the light that you brought into my life. But I'm sure I will see you in two weeks. I'm not worried. So uh, let's see. Um, first of all, I know that. Um, uh, Lulu had a poem, and I know Lulu had to leave. Maybe she's already gone. L Lulu, did you leave already? No, 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 I'm here. No. Can you hear me? She didn't. Okay, so Lulu, you, you can go first. I know other people have things, but I know you have to leave. So I, I think why don't you Norman, uh, share Norman, with us what you have? I'm sorry, everybody. You have to unmute. Norman's not can. hearing us. He needs to What does that say? Norman, go to the arrow next to... Mute button. Yeah, bottom left. The arrow. I don't see. The arrow next to mute button. Hold it up again, John. I didn't see the rest of it. Okay. Right. And select. Yeah, I did. I did do that, John. For speaker. I did do that. For speaker. I selected that. For speaker. So, Lulu, are you, are you, can you speak? Can we hear you? I can. Can you hear me? I can't. We can't hear you. Now, why is that? We can. Un yes, we can I'm going to unplug can this. Yeah. Yeah, unplug it. Right. All right. All right. So, John Murray, you can hear me? Yes. Now we, we can all hear you now. Apparently, my new, my new uh, microphone has this effect, so I unplug. Okay. Good. All good. My apologies. Okay. Okay, here goes. We can, we can all hear you now. 
the the earth is on fire after Mary Oliver's wild geese, a requiem, not an ode. The earth is on fire while glaciers ablate and polar bears paddle furiously in bath temperature water and bleached coral reefs starve marine worms, snails, and sea stars of coral polyps. Meanwhile, I pretend I will have drinkable water on tap, fresh sashimi for takeout, blind to the wild geese flying high into toxic plumes belched from angry forests. Meanwhile, I pretend plastic can be recycled, a myth created by big plastic, and flash fashion bought impulsively will not end in the landfill, off-gassing methane. Meanwhile, I pray to Great Mother to show mercy while we continue to soil our own nests, our only home. Uh, Martha, you have a poem, don't you? You want to you want to read it? You can put yourself on mute, un unmute. I mean, If you look at the micro, oh, there you go, there you go, you got it, good. Unmute myself. It's okay. You're, you're there. You're, you're unmuted now. So I wrote this ode as a, a gratitude to all the people who wrote odes in the heart of compassion. So this is a ode of thanks to all those that wrote such beautiful odes. Rising up out of the deep waters of our souls came our songs, our laments, our hymns, our odes. Gifts freely given, forged in friendships. Reminders, we are not alone, but held in the heart of compassion knowing that even in the hard times, there will be singing. I know there were some others who uh, told me they had something. Uh, one was Ron Israel. I don't know if Ron, are you there, Ron? There you are. Yeah. Yeah. You had you had a song, right? Right. Can you hear me? You wanna, you want, yeah, we can hear you. Great. Can you can you you want to do your song? Sure. Okay. Uh, 
Can you hear my guitar? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, here we go. Hey, Mother Earth, how do you run? What you been up to with father, son? I'm thinking about what you got going on and how you keep singing your amazing song. How do you do it? What does it take? Don't you get tired of belly ache? Don't you get upset how we carry on? Still you keep singing your amazing song. I hear you're in trouble, doing your best. We turned up the heat. You started to stress to help us all. It's a big deal. And I'm thinking about, thinking about, thinking about how you must feel. Because we cut down your trees, plunder your seeds, invest in beachfront properties, always building where you live. Always taking more than we give. But hey, Mother Earth, I can't leave you like this. I got to restore your confidence in me and my family who did some things wrong. Closed our ears to your amazing song. So I'm listening up, changing my ways. Gonna love you the rest of my days. Make sure the two of us get along. And always let you sing your amazing song. Boy, that was that was really great, Ron. Oh, really super duper. <laughs> you, you have to come come next week because you might have to sing it again. Don't bring okay. your guitar again. You know, maybe uh, John will have you sing it again because it's really great. It bears repeating. Thank you. Okay. Wonderful, Bruce. Did you did you have something you wanted to read or say, Bruce King? Yeah, you can unmute. Yeah, I, I did. I wrote. I wrote something, and uh, uh, a long-expected visitor from France is going to walk in the door any minute. So this could be poem interruptus, but um, okay. we'll give it a shot. Okay. Imagine this place right where you are right now, thousands of years ago. Human beings move through a lush landscape, low on technology, but fully human beings, alert, engaged 
sometimes crying, sometimes laughing. They know every plant and animal around them in ways you cannot imagine. A man walks the perimeter of the group, senses your presence, looks up and sniffs the air. Imagine this place right where you are right now, thousands of years from now. Landscape, trees, and grasses are all familiar, but not the same. And people are here with clothing and buildings completely unlike anything you know, living lives you never imagined. A young woman walks through a field. She is your granddaughter, seven times seven generations yet to come. And she carries a baby as mothers ever have. With the sun in her hair, she turns and looks at you, looks for a long moment. Seeing your tears, she reaches across time and touches your cheek, says, It's all right. It's all right. You didn't understand. None of you could have possibly understood the stupendous moment on earth into which you were born. So much, so fast, so everywhere. Be at ease. Do what you can and especially be at peace when the fear is raging. That is your only and impossible and lovely task. The baby stirs and lifts her head to see over her mother's shoulder and looks at you, looks for a long moment. Wonderful. Anybody else have something? I I have a little poem. Okay, please. Okay, this is. Um... Hi, Laura. I haven't seen you forever. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you. What a surprise. <laughs> oh, it was, I just said, it's time to open the gate again. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, let's hear your poem, please. Well, this little poem came out of um, um, a very, uh, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm great joy to hear about the firefighters and what Chris is doing. Because lately this summer, before the summer in May, we had a dry season where all the mountains became ablaze because of a habit that the um, farmers have that before uh, the next, the rains come, they're supposed to machete the weed, but instead a lot put fire to it. So the fire that was behind the town got so strong, it was just lightning. And uh, one night, uh, um, many, many um, women started saying, the fire is coming near the houses, the houses on the other side of town. And it would happen to be a night where everybody was at a party and nobody was responding to them. So, um, well, we, I, I thought, oh, go near the flames as I had a terrible cough already and an allergy and whatnot. But several of the workers that were on duty, the barman, the Tata, we all got in truck and went to the fire. And there were many women there trying to figure out where to get water from. The whole mountain behind the town on the other side of town was blazing um, because somebody had not. Uh, so 
uh, as we were all trying and we called the water pipe, the uh, the bomberos, the firefighters were not available because they were out of fire. They were overwhelmed with fires everywhere during May. And so as we tried to, we got together about mostly 10 women and the three employees from Maradejade. Now I lost the poem. And as we were, um, well, the gist of the poem, I, I'm trying to see if it's the gist of the poem, I lost it, was that after this exhausting thing and the water pipe that usually gives water for drinking came to hose in the, the, um, the well, what's it called? The hose was very long and difficult to get into because these the trees, shrub, and rocks, so it goes under the rocks and become terribly hot and they burst. So it was very dangerous, but somehow we managed to stop after like three hours coming near the houses at the edge of the town. And somehow I looked up and the moon was just cool and quiet and clear. And I looked down and it was flaming hot and destroying. And I took a picture of it, which I don't know how to present, but it was the moon in her quietude is watching this here on earth, the flames destroy us, but it brings us together. So the, the fact that we were brought together, that was my little haiku of the poem, is that there was such a contrast between the cool moon and the hot fire, and the fact that our hearts said, the hell with what I have, let's go. Lots of women said, let's go, let's see what we can do. Those, that hose is extremely heavy to lift. But thanks to the bartender, have you seen him? <laughs> and the maintenance guy that was on duty and the guy that was on watch, they managed to carry the hose while we um, put buckets closer and closer. And my poem was, yeah, how can we really become aware that when you live in nature, you have to follow certain rules? And this is the first year everywhere throughout the state, you would drive down the roads and there was fires everywhere. So how to change the old habit of light, it's um, burning, uh, burn and thrash so that it becomes easy to plant. If you did a circle and dug a circle around big enough, it wouldn't jump you know, for where you want to plant. So to change that old habit is, um, something that we have to study. But when the firefighters came, I mean, then it happened again, and then it happened again, and it was huh. an awful thing constantly. And the firefighters were exhausted. And, um, and that, but a lot of people participated because we don't have a very formal structure of firefighters, and there's very few of them. So I really honor what Chris is doing to honor the firefighters, and I'm sure to join her so we can do that for the people that are doing that for us, they're at such high risk. And that night I really knew the heat so close. I mean, and I was one that because I don't see, I didn't go crawl down to the rocks, you know, I would have stumbled in it and I could feel the heat where I was near the water truck so terribly, but the younger woman did go down and the men carried the hose. And what just struck me is the contrast of how our behavior is, is, is so reckless sometimes. So, ah, you know, and the people that responded, was, we remained a really close group. And we're the ones that are asking for, um, to have development plans for the town, not become like New York, to leave green spaces, to take care of them. The mountains, the rivers, this is what gives us our joy, our breath, the beauty of living. You know? 
So thank you for listening. But my poem was the cool, the cool moon looks down calmly at the place and destroying it, but bringing us together is basically the poem. Thank you, Laura. Wow. Thank it's you. hard to imagine the jungle on fire, right? I mean, the jungle is so humid, right? And May, it becomes very dry. The dry, dry. Hey, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're always there, and, the, and that's where December. Like, yeah. yeah, in case nobody, in case somebody doesn't know, La Lara is from Mardahade, where we're always having session in the winter time, and this we will again this year from the, I think the second to the tenth of December. We're at, with Lara, as we always are in in Mardahade in Chicala, Mexico. And I want to make an extension of an invitation at our trade farm. We built a meditation hall for the young kids and the local people. So if any of our everyday Sangha wants to come and volunteer, teach, participate in farming, cooking, baking, we do all kinds of activity and we need hands-on, but we also need guides to open the Zen doors, as you said in your previous poem, do everything you can to open the Zen doors. And this is, a wonderful opportunity to give young people that marvelous practice of awareness of their life without attaching to what they do and what they don't do, yeah. a certain sense of freedom they don't actually have with all the social programming. Wonderful what you're doing down there. Thank you. See you soon. Hope you can join us there sometime a week before. Yes, I, yes. I, I was thinking maybe we could come down a day early because we haven't been to the new to the new Please. development. Yeah, and anybody would like to come, it would be wonderful. Yeah, I want to be a residential for our everyday sangha to participate with the young Mexican locals. Yeah. Okay. See you soon. Thank See you. you soon. Thank you. Herman. I'm glad. I'm glad that that fire was put out. That sounds really scary. Oh, it was. It was scary. Wow. Yeah, it was scary. So it's uh, not. And what you just read also sends to mind. There's things we can do to fight a mission on the coast, like, you know, um, panels for electricity and yeah. a lot of, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Let me ring the bell and we just take a breath. Mm -hmm. Naomi. You can unmute and, and speak to us. There you are. Okay. Um, this poem was inspired by Brian Schwimm's book on the universe. And it's spoken in a play of mine called Snake Talk by the Hag. And it's her cosmology. There are some folks who think they know what everything is about. Like they think all the objects around us are made of dead stuff. But then there are the scientists and the poets and folks like that. And they say it's like, you know, uh, 
carbon and helium and all of that star stuff when it comes down here becomes oceans and cats and you and me and chairs and Hitler and Mozart and folks like that. We're all one human being, one living being, I mean to say. Do you get what I am saying? One living being. And we humans were supposed to be the brains of the earth. Well, that's a little hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, don't know. That's the things I don't know. And it's a relief to say so. For example, I cannot figure out what is happening in the universe. But then he took at Einstein, so I'm in pretty good company. More than that, I cannot figure out what makes some folks so mean, mean, torturing and killing animals, trees, people, the planet. But then I can't either figure out makes some folks so beautiful. You want to fall in love with them right on the spot. And that means all of you listening to me right now. I'm in love with you. I'm okay with that. I call it the mystery. Everyone loves a mystery. I remember seeing that play, Snake Talk, long ago. Yeah. We've got two more hands uh, for tonight, Terry and then Pam. So Terry Baum, do you want to say something? Yes. Um, I have. I. I. I have been inspired by um, the first song to sing a second song. Get out of your cars, get onto the bus. You gotta do it, don't make a fuss, just do it. We gotta get rid of those damn cars, all of them, all of them. I'm telling you folks, get out of your cars, 
cars, no more cars, get on the bus. Oh yes, that's us on the bus. All of us on the same damn bus, not a little old car traveling alone, but a bus with everyone. Get out of your cars, get onto the bus. We must, we absolutely must. <laughs> that was me talking to God. <laughs> Hi, uh, good to be here, everybody. This is a poem I wrote um, as an ode. Uh, it is an ode, and I wrote it at a heart of compassion. Sangha uh, during the time that we were all uh, writing odes together. It's called Ode to Dust. Dear Dust, lifetime roommate, what are you? You are made of pollen, bacteria, smoke, ash, hair, bits of dirt, sand even. Indiscriminate, you embody any old thing dead skin cells, paper fibers and clothing fibers, dust mite droppings and body parts, carpet bits and soot. Detritus of multitudes taking their last stands within you, finding refuge there. You are cosmic too, falling from space. I did not know that one grain of you rides in every single raindrop. And you are that to which I will return when my own cosmic moment has passed. On the one hand, you are a threat to humanity, causing serious allergic reactions. On the other, you actively fertilize the ocean. With scarce iron, you promote algae growth, phytoplankton as well. Dust, most dear, all this time, I did not realize you are alive, but without a self, just like me. Not knowing you, you are no longer other. I can't appreciate, even bow to you. Temple of disintegration, teaching impermanence, emptiness airborne, settling everywhere with a gentle, indifferent caress. Let's, let's sit for, for five minutes and really uh, feel all that we have heard. See what uh, what's important to us. <laughs> 